Well, we're right back where we started. We have come full circle. Remember in the burning bush section where Moses first encountered Yahweh, and Moses was told that once you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God at this mountain. And here we are. Moses, in spite of all his shortcomings, has been affirmed as a good leader for the Israelites. He has stood up to Pharaoh, organized and led a major revolt against slavery, has withstood the grumbling and complaining of his own people, and overall has become a respected religious and political leader. He has gained the respect of the Israelites and continues to serve as the mediator between God and the people. The Israelites have arrived at that sacred ground, Mount Oreb, just as Yahweh told Moses they would. And here they will stay for the rest of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, as well as the first ten chapters of the book of Numbers. This holy ground, this sacred place, Mount Oreb, also called Mount Sinai, depending on the literary tradition, is indeed a very special place. While the exact location of the sacred mountain can't be determined, religious history and tradition both confirm one spot in southern Sinai as a most special place. Beginning long before Christianity, Jewish people held this area as sacred. And since the 300s, Christians have visited Jebel Musa, or Mountain of Moses, as a pilgrimage destination. That site is along an ancient route between Egypt and the southern Sinaitic Peninsula, and it was a reasonable walking distance from Egypt. So it is quite possible that this is the area where the Israelites experienced their covenantal encounter with Yahweh. It is the place where the Israelite people were transformed from a bunch of former slaves into a community of believers that affirmed their relationship with Yahweh. And it is the place where the Israelites experienced the presence of God in the making of the covenant. Most of us can fondly recall where we experienced some sort of a conversion that drew us closer to God. Perhaps it was a retreat, a quiet moment of prayer in which you had a heartfelt encounter with God, or maybe a sacramental experience of God's grace. For me, when I visit our diocesan center, it is shown in the introduction to this video, memories flood my thoughts about a God-centered youth retreat that I attended as a junior in high school. It was a weekend at which a number of us young people experienced God like no other time in our lives. That weekend made an impact on my life, and I truly believe that it helped me become the person I am today. This place is one of my sacred places. Holy ground and sacred places are too rare of an experience for all of us. Hopefully, we can all learn to better recognize those special moments when they occur, just as Moses did when he returned to his sacred ground, Mount Sinai. 
Chapter 19 is, well, it is like the Israelites wandering in the desert. It's all over the map. First, we've got a nice little summary about what God has done for the Israelites and just how special they are to God. But wasn't it just two chapters back that the Israelites were at Massah and Meribah questioning the Lord and Moses and wanting to return to Egypt? Then we've got Moses, who seems to be running up and down the mountain, carrying messages back and forth, trying to get everything and everyone ready for a really special encounter with Yahweh. And we have the people. They are cautioned, they are fearful, and they are even threatened to the point of death. The people trembled, and then even the mountain trembled. And it seems as though Moses is still running up and down the mountain. Now, this is a busy chapter. So what's going on here? It seems that we have at least two different versions of the same event. Or maybe it is a conglomeration of memories of an event that has evolved over many years before it was ever written down. Remember that oral tradition has preceded any of the written material. And since this is a most significant event in all of Israelite history, it is probably a piece of many faith journeys. And we all know that each person's story of a single experience can vary from one person to the next. The smoke, trembling people, and the trembling mountains, the loud blasts, thunder... Could all this be explained by many pilgrimage stories handed down over many years with the thunder getting louder and the smoke getting thicker? Or maybe Mount Sinai was somewhere else and it was volcanic activity. But on the other hand, the experience of God can be described using all these adjectives and many more. As scripture scholar J.P. Hyatt states, the biblical writers did not have a primary interest in geographical data and in making precise statements. They were interested in relating the events in light of the meaning which they attributed to them. This is a major event in Jewish history. There are no words or descriptions that can accurately depict that experience of God. The giving of the law, the Torah, by Yahweh to the Israelites is one of the three major celebrations by our Jewish cousins. It is called Shavat and was also known as Pentecost, the very feast that Peter and the early Christians were celebrating when the Holy Spirit descended on them in Acts chapter 2. Shavat is always celebrated seven weeks after the second day of Passover the date of which is set primarily by the first full moon of springtime, as described in chapter 13 of Exodus. The law of Moses governs the religious practices and traditions that were to be a way of life for the Israelites. It was all part of the covenant with Yahweh that the people freely embraced at Mount Sinai. True freedom is the ability and option to consider an action that has several outcomes and to make a choice. 
or having a defined set of boundaries in which we have the freedom to choose. The commandments provided not only the Israelites, but all people, the opportunity to understand who God is by living within the law. By understanding who God is, we come to know more about ourselves. How else can we get to know God and ourselves if we don't have any guidelines or teaching moments that help define who we are as a person? Bernard Anderson writes, The Decalogue merely stakes out general limitations, but within these limitations, there is wide latitude for freedom of action or for interpretation of obligation to God and to one's fellow human beings. Freedom of the heart is where the truth can be found regarding laws, commandments, and our personal intentions. Recall the Pharisee who asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment. Jesus summed up all the commandments by saying that we are to love the Lord our God and our neighbor as ourself. Is the first commandment the most important or the most difficult? Obviously, the answer is yes. If one can't honor the commandment to love God, why would there be any interest in keeping the rest of the commandments? All of the commandments are about relationships. The first three commandments focus on our relationship with God, our personal relationship with God. God is requiring an exclusive personal relationship with each of us. I am the Lord, your God. This exclusive relationship forbids those multiple deities that other cultures claimed. The first commandment also forbids idols. The Israelites would have been familiar with cultures that created images of God made from materials such as wood or clay. And it was assumed that a God would come into these figures and then a person could manipulate that God by sacrifices and actions for their own good, like a God of fertility or a warrior God. Yahweh, however, was not to be manipulated or be represented by an image. The second commandment is similar to the first in that God's name can't be used to influence or control things for our own purpose or gain. Other cultures would have used the name of certain gods to gain control of situations or problems. In ancient times, God's name was used in swearing that is, in taking oaths and making Yahweh a witness to truth, but not to lies. Today's society is pretty flippant with the use of God's name. But if we truly love and respect God, we should speak God's name with reverence. The commandment of honoring the Sabbath is first stated in Genesis, and is based on God himself resting on the seventh day of creation. This practice was extended to servants, work animals, and many other facets of life. A friend that was recently visiting the Holy Land was appalled at the many services that were unavailable there because of observance of the Sabbath. 
Shouldn't it be just as shocking to the extent that we treat Sunday as just another day of the week, except that we take an hour for church? Honoring the Sabbath today is much different than just 40 or 50 years ago. A small part from the hardware store, just one item from the supermarket. Oh, and let me fill up the tank while I'm out. I'm guilty of not honoring the Sabbath. More and more, Sunday is looking like another Saturday for Christians. But you know, I certainly admire the owner of one national fast food chain that requires all franchised locations to close on Sunday. When I drive by one of their closed locations near my home, I am reminded to keep holy the Sabbath. Family relationships for the Israelites were very important as several generations of families lived together as clans. Honoring one's elders of the family offered respect and dignity to those previous generations. It was also believed to return long life and honor to those who showed such kindness to their elders. Let's just hope that our children are getting that same message. The remaining commandments seem to be pretty straightforward, but there is more than what meets the eye. For obvious reasons, respect for life, the prohibition of theft, adultery, and insincerity are important. But acts such as these among a community of people create feelings of distrust, individualism, suspicion, greed, selfishness all of which not only alienate us from God, but from others in our community as well. Have you ever been around someone who always blamed others for everything? Where's my saw? Someone must have stolen it. Where did that scratch come from on my car? Well, someone must have done it on purpose. No mail today? I wonder if someone went through our box. I wonder what kind of neighbors are moving in across the street. A person could make all these kinds of statements and still claim to live by the commandments. But distrust, doubt, and exclusion are not Ten Commandment values. The Decalogue was, and still is, intended to create trusting relationships that build interdependence instead of distrust, doubt, and exclusion. The family, the faith community, and even our own neighborhoods are all at risk when we can't trust one another. Has this communal aspect of the commandments been lost? The Ten Commandments are stated in broad, general terms addressing people's relationship with God, with their family, and then commanding the entire community to respect marriage, property, life, and relationships. Most of us can probably say on a regular basis, I keep the commandments. However, the question that might be more appropriate should be, what have I done to build relationships within my family, my community, the workplace, and my parish? Recall that the commandments were given in a communal setting. When Moses set before them all the Lord had ordered him to tell them, 
All the people answered together, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Notice the choice of words here. Them, all, the people, together, we. All indications of a community of believers, not individuals. You know, it is interesting to consider what kind of law is used in the Decalogue. It is called absolute law. Compare this section of the commandments with chapters 21 to 23 of Exodus, which contains the Book of the Covenant and individual behavior and punishment. This is called conditional law. Scripture scholars have noted that conditional law and even some aspects of the Book of the Covenant can be found in the time period that predates the Israelites. In other words, some of the material may have been copied from previous codes of conduct. As for the Decalogue, Scripture scholars still cannot conclusively place its origins anywhere other than the time of Moses and the Israelites. Isn't it remarkable? No, make that miraculous, that the commandments are so unique but timeless and universally applicable to any community. Moses had a difficult time understanding his initial call from God and may have been slightly confused about what God was asking of him. But when it comes to the Ten Commandments, Moses didn't miss a word. Can you recall when you had to memorize the Ten Commandments? It must have been second grade for me. I remember that there was a poster board in the back of the classroom where we could check off prayers that we had memorized. The Hail Mary, the Our Father, the Glory Be, and also each commandment in preparation for First Communion. I remember each classmate would be excited to go up to Sister Joseph Ann and say, Sister, can I say the act of contrition for you? Can I say the commandments for you? Perhaps it is time for us to be like Moses and to return to where we started. For the Israelites, the commandments were not only part of the covenant with God, but also a means of building community of believers where love and respect for one another was just as important as loving and respecting God. It was with good reason that Jesus called us to have the faith of a child. As adults, it seems that we've made the commandments a lot more difficult than they really are. Jesus reminded us of just how simple the commandments are. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these.